Tyler and Van Dyke's favorite time of year was fast approaching, and this Halloween was sure to be a bittersweet one. With her costume ready to go, her Halloween night turned from fun to frightening. I'm Jennifer Blades, and this is a special Halloween edition of The Unanswered Podcast. It was Halloween 2011 in Armstrong, British Columbia, when 18-year-old Taylor Van Dyce was excited to start her night trick-or-treating, as this was going to be her last Halloween spent going door-to-door collecting candy, because she was, as some would say, a little too old for this Halloween tradition. It was said that Halloween was Taylor's favorite time of year, and that she loved scary movies. Taylor changed into her homemade zombie costume and headed out of the house around 6 p.m. to get the night started with friends. Taylor, who was a twin and a recent high school graduate, was known for not only being beautiful, but intelligent. She worked hard in school and was looking forward to the future, getting a job, and now that she was 18, a tattoo. So it's pretty safe to say that Taylor was a responsible person So alarm bells went off when she didn't show up to meet her friends. And probably the most alarming thing for someone her age, she stopped answering her text messages. But before that, it's reported that she texted her boyfriend Colton, who was amongst the group that she was meeting up with, a message that said, being creeped. When the text from Taylor stopped, Zoe, Taylor's best friend, and Colton knew something was wrong. Around 7.30 p.m., Taylor's family called the police. Sometime later, Zoe, Colton, along with Marie, Taylor's mother, and another friend went searching for her after some local boys reported that they found Taylor's cell phone by the railroad tracks. Around 8.45 p.m., Taylor was found face down in a ditch near the tracks. She was alive, but unconscious, and had several injuries. Taylor appeared to have defensive wounds on her, which one could assume meant that she put up a fight, which also meant there was a good chance that she had her attacker's DNA underneath her fingernails. She was taken to a local hospital, where sadly, later she died. I can only imagine the number of questions that went through the family, community, and law enforcement's head. According to the Vernon Morning Star, RCMP spokesperson Gord Melendick said, quote, At this time, we believe Taylor left her home near the intersection of Colony Avenue and the Pleasant Valley Road at 5.50 p.m. and walked north on Pleasant Valley Road for 10 minutes to the railway tracks where she was attacked. With no known witnesses or evidence as to what truly happened to Taylor, Police released a photo of her in her zombie costume and a tan jacket in the hopes that someone would remember seeing her that night with someone or multiple someones. Melendic also said, quote, We are hoping that these photos jog someone's memory, that they may have seen her or anyone else walking north on the sidewalk of Pleasant Valley Road that evening around this time. Tips started pouring in but nothing that led to any suspects. Police do believe that Taylor was followed, but now they weren't sure if she was meeting up with someone that she knew, or did she unfortunately encounter a stranger that attacked her 
and beat her with an unidentified object. The community was on edge. This rocked them to their core. They thought they lived in a safe area, but as Taylor's father later stated, quote, it doesn't matter where you are, you know? I mean, you hear people say this, that would never happen here. Nah, it happens anywhere and everywhere, even in a small little town like Armstrong. A break in the case from the DNA underneath Taylor's nails led police to a man by the name of Matthew Forrester. Forrester didn't know Taylor before that night. It was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time and encountering a real-life monster. On April 4, 2012, Forrester was arrested in Ontario, British Columbia, which is roughly 500 miles from Armstrong, where the murder took place. When interrogated, Forrester sat sobbing and told officers that that night he was drinking and smoking marijuana and was looking for someone to have sex with. He approached Taylor, and when she fought back, Forrester became enraged and beat her with a metal flashlight and strangled her with a shoelace. There was also a steel pipe found next to Taylor's body that was also used, resulting in a skull fracture. Forrester would stand trial, where he was eventually convicted of first-degree murder, but appealed the conviction based on an error at the trial, and unbelievably, he won and received a second trial and convicted of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 17 years and would not be eligible for parole until after the 17 years was served. However, he may apply for a reduction in ineligibility after serving 15 years. The family was not happy with the court's decision, but as Taylor's mother stated during her victim impact statement, quote, this has created a gaping wound within me. This sentencing is merely an act of adding salt to that wound. Forrester will be eligible to apply for parole April 4th, 2029. As I mentioned, there was a chance for Forrester to apply for a reduction of parole in eligibility in April 2027. It would then be up to the parole board to decide whether or not parole is granted. Let's hope that doesn't happen, because honestly, Forrester doesn't deserve to see the light of day, even if it's just letting him out two years earlier. That's two years that Taylor will never have. This is such a senseless act that left a community and family and friends wondering why that sweet, Halloween-loving teen was taken away from them. The Taylor Jade Van Dyce Memorial Trail that links Rosedale Avenue to Pleasant Valley Road and is paved with roses, Taylor's favorite flower, was created by the family. The trail leads to a gazebo with benches where a photo of Taylor hangs. And now, the Wolf Mask Murders. Listener discretion is advised. San Jose, California is in the heart of the Silicon Valley and known as a hub for technology. Just an hour away from San Francisco, with a wide range of hiking options for those who love the outdoors. But on October 31st, 1984, San Jose was known 
for one of the most brutal crimes in California history. Doreen Hitchens was a physical therapist who met factory worker William Michael Dennis, who went by the name of Mike. Mike worked nearby at the Lockheed factory, giving a couple a chance to get to know each other better. The two dated and quickly got hitched. After settling into married life, Doreen was pregnant and gave birth to the couple's son, who they named Paul. Only after two years of marriage, Doreen filed for divorce and got full custody of baby Paul. Mike saw Paul every weekend and loved being a dad. Shortly after their divorce, Doreen met and married Charles Herbert, a carpet store owner. And shortly after, they had a baby girl named Deanna. Life was idyllic for the family, until one day when young Paul had been playing in the backyard of the family's home while Doreen was doing some household chores. At some point, Doreen realized that she could no longer see Paul. She rushed outside to find him floating in the pool. Paul was taken to a local hospital and placed on life support. Sadly, he passed away less than a month before his fourth birthday. This terrible news devastated Mike, and the following year, he sued Doreen and Charles for personal injuries and wrongful death for Paul's drowning. The case went to trial and the jury found that Paul's death was an accident. In the courtroom, Charles asked Mike not to come to their home anymore. Mike didn't take the divorce to Doreen well and coupled with the death of his son and the outcome of the lawsuit, Mike was left a broken man and had one thing on his mind, revenge. It's reported that Mike blamed Doreen for Paul's death stating that he believed Doreen killed Paul because she was not watching him and felt that she should have dove into the pool to rescue him after finding him at the bottom. Early in the month of October 1984, Mike was demoted from his job at Lockheed. Not only did his position change, but so did his salary. It was obvious that he was unhappy with this change and would often make sarcastic comments to his new co-workers. Let's just say, Life wasn't working out for Mike. On Halloween night, as the streets filled with children dressed in the quintessential plastic He-Man and rainbow bright mask, an eight-month pregnant Doreen was at home handing out candy and waiting for four-year-old Deanna and Charles to return home from trick-or-treating. As the two returned, with no doubt a bag filled with Halloween candy for Deanna to pick through, Charles ran to a nearby liquor store in his truck and told Doreen that it was getting late and that she should close up the house for the evening. When he returned about 15 minutes later, he noticed the front door was unlocked. He opened the door where he saw an unimaginable sight. There was his pregnant wife lying bleeding in a pool of blood at the entry of the couple's living room. Initially, Charles thought Doreen had miscarried, but then noticed Doreen's hand lying in the living room along with parts of the fetus. He frantically tried to stop the bleeding from her arm when he noticed several cuts on her neck and stomach. Despite this gruesome scene, Doreen was still alive. Charles ran to the phone to call 911, but slipped and fell in his wife's blood, which he was already covered in from trying to stop the bleeding. Charles could not reach 911, so he called the fire department and a neighbor for help. While making these frantic phone calls, 
Charles noticed Deanna hiding in the living room. He picked her up and took her into the kitchen. According to court documents, Charles said that Deanna told him that she heard the baby crying. Deanna also reported Charles and the neighbor that the man who killed Doreen told her if she told anyone that he would kill her. Paramedics arrived at the horrifying scene as Charles, his neighbor, and Deanna sat in his car. When Charles saw the paramedics putting his wife into the ambulance, he tried to go with her, but the paramedics requested that he stay behind. Shortly after, Charles found himself in handcuffs due to his bloody clothes and the smell of alcohol on his breath. They placed him in the back of a patrol car where he sat upset and kicking at the car's window for an hour. Around 9.15 p.m., Reserve San Jose Police Officer Glenn Sutphin arrived on the scene. Sutphin, along with other officers, searched the house to make sure the perpetrator wasn't still there. As all this was taking place, Doreen was fighting for her life as her hand lay in a pool of blood near the fetus. The fetus's leg was severed and a paramedic determined that he could not be resuscitated. Sadly, Doreen was pronounced dead by the time the ambulance made it to the hospital. As one can only imagine, the Herbert's home was a chaotic crime scene and was said to be extremely bloody. Between Charles, the paramedics, firefighters, and police moving about the house, evidence was sure to be disturbed. A blood spattered expert testified that there were velocity stains in the entryway, on a stool, jack-o'-lantern, the front door, and the ceiling. The blood that was found on the upper walls and ceiling most likely came off the weapon after being raised while striking Doreen. There were slash marks found on the front door and in the eight-foot-high ceiling just above the entryway. With so much blood, it was hard to find any evidence. But one thing that they did find that was out of place and didn't belong to anyone in that Herbert house was a wolf mask that was left in a corner of the front porch. Police were on a hunt to find this savage killer. At 12.23 in the morning, Sergeant James Morin, along with four other San Jose officers, rang the doorbell of Michael Dennis, Doreen's ex-husband, to see if he had any insight into who would have wanted to attack Doreen and her unborn baby. A uniform officer rang the bell, but there was no response. The police contacted the county communications to have them call Mike to instruct him to open the door. Mike finally answered. However, it didn't appear that he had been asleep. Sergeant Marin told Mike that his ex-wife had been attacked and they wanted to know if he had any information that might lead to her killer. Mike let them in and sat across from Sergeant Marin with a straight face and said, quote, you're kidding. Sergeant Moore noticed a blood-soaked gauze wrapped around Mike's fingers on his right hand. Mike was asked to produce his identification and an officer escorted him upstairs to his bedroom to retrieve it. The officer noticed that the bed did not appear to have been slept in. The officer also noticed that as Mike was looking for his ID, he kept looking over at his headboard. Later, an officer found a loaded revolver on the floor behind the headboard. Mike did consent to a search of his house, and what Sergeant Morin found in the garage would turn this case on its head. There was a trail of blood from in front of the washer and dryer that led outside. They also found drops of blood in the kitchen and on a pair of jeans on Mike's bed 
that were saturated with blood, along with blood on his keys and a bloody bandage in the bathroom trash. Mike was arrested and the house was secured. Mike's mother, who lived in the back of the house in a separate apartment on the property, was asleep. They also found a truck in Mike's driveway. Police could tell that the truck was dusty and had recently been driven due to feeling the hood, and you guessed it, it was still warm. As I mentioned, the truck was dusty and police could tell that the driver's door and the window appeared to have been recently wiped down. When they opened the door, they discovered blood on the ignition switch, the radio switch, and on a piece of rope in the truck, on the back seat rest, and on the steering column. A spot of blood was also found on the seat and another on the rubber mat underneath the gas pedal. With all of this evidence, police were able to get a search warrant, and what they found in Mike's bedroom was sure to point the finger directly at him for this heinous crime. In his bedroom closet, there was an adhesive label for a Stanley 18-inch machete. Although they didn't find the machete in his home, they did find a receipt from a local hardware store where they purchased the same machete that had the same label as the one found in Mike's closet. The machete would later be introduced into evidence. And as for that cartoonish wolf mask with its tongue hanging out and bulging eyes, well, it was said that Mike wore it a year before to a Halloween party. There was even a picture of him wearing the same mask along with matching rubber hands. This too was submitted into evidence. Mike was arrested and waived his rights to be questioned during a taped interview. He denied killing Doreen and said that he was home. As for the cuts on his hand, Mike stated that he carelessly tossed a kitchen knife into the air and accidentally grabbed it by the blade. I don't know about you listeners, but that excuse sounds pretty lame to me. Again, Mike denied walking to Doreen's house or even being close to it that night. A doctor interviewing Mike stated that he was suffering from major depression over the death of his son Paul and that he had a dependent personality disorder. He believed that this had a tremendous impact at the time of the killing and Mike's actions. With forensic evidence and eyewitness testimony, Mike was sentenced to death on August 16, 1988. He was found guilty of first-degree murder of Doreen and second-degree murder for her son. He currently sits on death row in San Quentin State Prison. Mike has appealed his case and wants a new trial. He believes that if people knew what he'd been through, the outcome of the verdict would have been different. Thankfully, none of his appeals has been successful. Not only was his case senseless, but it was gruesome. And that wolf mask was a representation of the kind of animal Mike truly is. Thank you for listening to this special Halloween edition of The Unanswered Podcast. Join me next week for another Halloween true crime story. Don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend or two about this podcast. Like us on Facebook and Instagram. Stay safe.